abracadabra, I sit on his knee. Presto, change and now he is me. Pocus, pocus, we take her to bed. Magic is fun. We're dead. Josephine Levine presents Magic, a terrifying love story, starring Anthony Hopkins, Anne Margaret, and Burgess Meredith, rated R. It's Ben Reiser and Scott Lucas. We are here with you on another edition of 70 movies we saw in the 70s. This is movie number... I don't even know. Come on, <laughs> even, what is it? I don't know why. I don't know why I, I um, started that sentence with the full knowledge that I had no idea <laughs> how to end it. What a fucking idiot I am. Well, uh, Let me see something. Well, this is episode number 48, but... We had a couple double features, so I would say maybe this is the 50th film we're talking about. Okay, so the double features count. Well, I don't know. Listen, you're very good at like establishing rules and then trying to stick to them. Mm-hmm. Like uh, our, our road reports like have, <laughs> have continued from tour to tour without an interruption of no- numerical whatever, all that shit. So, you know, I mean, what are these things but compilations and lists and you know i mean you and i we're the kind of people that obsess over lists so you know let's have a list all right yeah so i think the double features count i mean we're talking about i mean i don't know i don't know i don't know i don't know what we're gonna do i haven't made up my mind about this goddamn podcast yet perfect well i'm in my third year of this thing and it's it's really just a Experiment in terror. <laughs> An experiment in terror, as Blake Edwards would say. Right. Um, so we're here to talk today about a little ditty called Magic from 1978, uh, directed by Richard Attenborough. Burrah. Crazy. Starring uh, Anthony Hopkins. Bert, mm-hmm. okay, oh, I meant to look this up. Maybe you know the answer. I've never known. Do you say Go. Burgess Meredith or Burgess Meredith? I would say Burgess. Okay. Yeah. And Anthony Burgess is the novelist? Goldman. (laughs) Yes. William Goldman is the novelist, but I'm saying, how do you pronounce Anthony Burgess? Burgess. Same way? What did he write? Clockwork Orange. Oh. Yeah. You know what? I used to think that they were the same person. Burgess kid. Meredith and Anthony Burgess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get yeah, to mix up. It's easy to make that mistake. Sure. Yeah, it's an Irish thing, right? Is that an Irish name? I, I mean, when Mickey, I hear, I use this, I'm very Irish. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would stay with Burgess on 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 all instances. Instances. How do you pronounce Burgess Meredith? Well, you know, but you know, Ireland's got that whole Celtic versus Celtic, so. Yeah, there's a lot of verses going on in Ireland. So, uh, I think the I think we came upon the idea of talking about magic because you are uh, taking a short break, but you're in the middle of a tour for your album, the twentieth anniversary, right? Twentieth anniversary right. of Here Comes the Zoo, and in all of your tour promo, um, and I and I believe going back to the original album promo, 
there is this dummy motif, like a ventriloquist right. dummy, evil dummy. Yeah. But, and I don't, I realize yes. I don't know why. <laughs> Can you tell us the story of this? There's, there's dummies on stage. I'm surrounded by dummies every night, more so than usual. Um, and I, me and my friend Mike McIntyre, we were watching a, what's that movie, the, is it The Hand, The Cradle Will Rock? Is that what it's called? Not The Hand That Rocks a Cradle, but Cradle Will Rock, that uh, Tim Robbins movie. And there's a scene with Bill Murray, and he's a ventriloquist, and Tenacious D, they want to learn how to become ventriloquists. And so there's a scene where they want him to watch their act. And they keep going, now who's the dummy? Now who's the dummy? Now who's the dummy? Now who's the dummy? And we thought that was the funniest thing. And we, we played the scene over and over. And it became a thing for us. And so one year, Mike bought me a ventriloquist dummy for my birthday. And we ended up using that in photo shoots. And, and that's how it all started with the, with the Tim Robbins movie. And it was, but it was photo shoots in uh, the uh, surrounding the here comes the zoo album right so i brought the dummy with me to like a photo shoot and uh you know everyone just liked the dummy and it just became this thing um i, I have the album any. somewhere the cd but i hadn't pulled it out is i can't remember or is there dummy artwork in the original album sleeve yeah all the the, the inside credits are are over this dummy face and then we put out an EP that has an even better picture of the dummy. Uh, and I considered making that the cover of the reissue, but we, we didn't do that. So it's the dummy that your friend bought you. Right. Yes. And he, it's wearing a shirt that says, now who's the dummy? And those oh. things are expensive, dude. Like we, we looked up some dummies to bring on tour and they were just like, like crazy amount of money, how much they cost. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure why. I, I have a feeling like is when you you know you watch the relationship that Anthony Hopkins has to his dummy. I have a feeling that people know that, and they're they're trying to gouge these poor ventriloquists. Uh, well, they know. I mean, I would think that with the more elaborate ones, where you're controlling not just the mouth, but also the eyebrows and the eyes right. and and the ears, right? There, like that's an elaborate. That's a pretty elaborate construction. So I think there's some work that goes into it. I suppose. I suppose. Uh, Maybe I'm, you know, apologies. No, no, no. But I remember. Dummy makers. Apologies to Geppettos everywhere. (laughs) No, I remember as a kid being into the idea of having a marionette, learning how to use a marionette. Right. And also a a ventriloquist dummy. Um, And also remembering that I that you know either my parents or my grandparents like dude that's those are lots of money you know and I got cheap ones oh really I I was able to get cheaper ones I think I had both I know I had a marionette that by the end of my very first day of playing with it the strings were a tangled mess and I don't think I was ever able to unravel them yeah uh or use the fucking thing <laughs> yeah. I think I was and I think really my inspiration for for wanting the marionette was the um the lonely goat herd sequence in sound of music like that to me was always like the greatest thing of all time 
You don't know Sound of Music? They do this whole puppet show where it's a do 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 Yeah. But we used to have marionette troops that would come to the, my school every year. So at the end of the year, they'd like do like, you know, the princess and the pea or the emperor's new clothes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was, I loved it. I was fascinated with it. So that's, that's why I was into marionettes when I was a kid. And I remember thinking that like, like my last year that I was in grade school, I remember that like, I forget what it was going to be the next year, but it was something to Japanese or samurais or something. And I was thinking, man, should I flunk so I can come back and see that next year? I didn't do that. <laughs> oh, man. You should have flunked. You could have flunked. Should have flunked. Yeah. flunked. Yeah. Whenever you can could've. flunk, I think you yeah. should flunk. Oh, well. If given the option. But, <laughs> okay, I want to I ask, I want to talk to you and see if you have a good take on why, why people are so scared, and not me, but why people are scared of ventriloquist dummies. And also, why are people scared of clowns? Two thing, two, two like classic <laughs> uh, things that people are afraid of that they sh- that you know theoretically are not meant to be scary. And I don't know why people think they are scary. Well, I can tell you why people are scared of clowns. Okay. Around here, three words: John Wayne Gacy. You know, I mean, he 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 changed the perception of clowns forever. You think that that's um, the origin of people's Midwestern people's fright? about clowns possibly possibly like a large chunk of people i mean i don't remember being afraid of clowns before that or you know i mean i remember reading it when i was in high school and Mm -hmm. and you know that i think that's gone a long way to making people afraid of clowns but i mean (laughs) there was killer clowns um but i'm trying to think of like were people afraid of Ronald McDonald? You know, I I, I don't think we were. You know, I see. I, I think like they were. I think that maybe King, it was Gacy. You know, yeah, maybe Gacy because I think that King and Stephen King and Killer Clowns from Outer Space, all that shit is riffing on what I feel is already a known entity, which is that there are people who are terrified of clowns. Right. And I do get it on an elemental level of like. There is something about people who are trying hard or something that's trying hard to be lighthearted or entertaining and, 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 but is really for little kids like terrifying because there's some freak in like white makeup and like, right. you know, exactly. like, kids don't know that that's like something that you're supposed to be uh, right. amused and, by. <laughs> and dummies are supposed to be for kids too, you know? And so like, you know, maybe there's just a chunk of kids that were terrified of dummies and terrified of clowns. And they went on to write books and make movies and ruin it for the rest of us. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it is this weird phenomenon, and not so much with clowns, because there's I think there's plenty of like pop culture built around clowns like Ronald McDonald, which isn't scary. But I was hard-pressed to find examples of ventriloquists and ventriloquism and ventriloquist dummies in movies or books or music or anything where there isn't this uh, element of, uh, you know, horror, horror, (laughs) or or psychological horror or supernatural terror. Like, it's weird. Like, ventriloquists really seem to be painted 
everywhere that you can find them as like psychologically unhinged at best. <laughs> right. And yeah. I don't know where that comes from, uh, except that I think here, here, here was the theory I worked up is that okay. I was reading a little bit about ventriloquists and it was pointed out that there really is no great skill involved with the actual act of ventriloquism. Like people don't come and they're like, wow, I can't believe that guy. I can't believe the words are so clear and the guy's mouth isn't moving because I, and I tried this yesterday and I'm sure it's not the first time I've ever tried to do that. I started to do some ventriloquism and I'm like, oh yeah, this is pretty, I pretty much sound like Anthony Hopkins. Like there's no real trick to it. You keep your fucking mouth closed. You can't pronounce B's or other hard consonants and you just kind of wing it. And, and I right. thought I sounded just about as clear as he does in most of the movie. I'll bet you did. <laughs> but, um, but so then, so what is the appeal or the interest? What's the point of it? And it, and it, and it seems obvious to me that it's, and, and I think I was reading this too, is that it's, it's the split per, it's the interplay between the ventriloquist and the dummy and the sort of speed with which uh, the ventriloquist can switch voices and also personalities. And uh-huh. so, so it's the illusion of two people talking, which of course lends itself to the idea of like schizophrenia or right. being bipolar. And so it, I, that makes sense to me. I'm like, oh, yeah, right. Because this whole act is based on something where if you just think about it for a minute, it's really like, ooh, this guy's got multiple Unhinged. personalities. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. All right. He's able to do it. You know, and that's right. that's the trick of it is to get people to believe that you're actually watching these two sentient creatures talk to each other. Think about Charlie McCarthy. And, you know, it, it's just like people were listening to a ventriloquist on the radio. I mean, what kind of, I, I know we, we, we constantly say, you know, people, we've always been the same. I don't think we were that, I don't think we're that, I, I, mean, I can't, you know what I mean? We're not the same. We have changed throughout the years. Like that would never fly today, right? I don't know about that. I mean, because I think that the, I think that the, like I just said, I think the entertainment value or the, the impressive thing about it is the back and forth and who the fuck cares if you're actually looking at what what's funny to me and what what brings out the unhinged thing is I was listening to Howard Stern talk about Waylon Flowers and Madam coming uh-huh. on the, the show at some yeah. point. And, and again, it's a radio show. But that uh, wait, wait, is it Wayland? Does it, did I just say the name right? Waylon Flowers. Waylon Flowers. That Waylon Flowers would not have the conversation between him and Howard Stern and Madam without having the Madam puppet in his hand. And Howard Stern was like, you don't need the fucking puppet. Nobody's looking at this. But he couldn't imagine doing it without the puppet. But I I don't know if Charlie, I don't know if Edgar Bergen had the same uh, rule about only doing those voices when the puppets were attached to his hand or not. That's that's freaking. I mean, but it's like... (laughs) It would be like listening to Fred Astaire dance, you know? I mean, you you have to see it. Yeah, see, this is where I think you are wrong. I think okay. that is not, I that think is not the, the appeal. The, the, the lips not moving is more important than you think it is. Okay. I mean, I think, I agree with you in that I think that that's the, that's the surface take on ventriloquism. And that's like what, what anybody would say if you're asked them, mm-hmm. 
what's the thing about a ventral? Oh yeah, well the, he's a really good one. You don't see his lips move at all. But <laughs> right. when you actually, but when you actually, when it actually comes down to it, like I said, er, anyone who attempts to do it or spends a little time doing it is just about as good at that part of it as anyone else. Right. Yeah. The, the, the issue is like what's the act are the jokes funny and are the personalities is the is the dummy's personality interesting enough to hold your attention that's I think the key yeah and so in a lot of ways it's sort of like when you watch Jimmy Fallon or some other asshole do like 25 rapid fire impressions of of celebrities in a row and you're like well I can't believe he went from you know Tracy Morgan to Barbara Walters as fast as he did. It's like that kind of thing. It's like, whoa, you know, this guy's able to turn on a dime. I think that's the ultimate secret behind good ventriloquists. Well, you've given this a lot of thought. Well, somebody had to. (laughs) You you looked under the hood of ventriloquism. (laughs) Here's the, but now here's something else. So then I was really thinking like, what is it that's got, and I was trying to remember two things were happening. I was like, well, how did Scott get into this whole fucking thing? And also, are there any instances, and Edgar Bergen, I suppose, is 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 the is the clear answer. Like, are there any instances of like ventriloquism not being creepy, or theoretically not designed? Like, there are are there any ventriloquist stories that aren't about some kind of creepy devil doll or some kind of psychologically unhinged ventriloquist? And I was trying to remember. And, and, and I hadn't thought of this in years, but I was like, oh, soap, that, that soap. sitcom. Soap, I was just going to say soap. Right. Yeah, yeah. I said, but right. I didn't yes, get you did. And I, but I'm excited because then I was like, oh, yeah. And I couldn't even remember, was that the sitcom? And I looked it up and I was like, oh, yeah, I, I totally remember this. But then as soon as, <laughs> as, soon as I looked at the, uh, wait, I'm going to pull dummy. this up for you. Yeah, as soon as I looked at the dummy, I was like, that dummy kind of looks like Scott. <laughs> oh. I was like, is that how you got into it? Hey, look no. at this guy. Here. This is Bob from... Uh, look at him. Can you see that as like a young Scott Lucas? <laughs> or or this guy? <laughs> you know, he's got the dark hair. Like, as opposed to a lot of these... You know, I think... What I'm saying is I think this dummy looks a lot more like you than most other dummies. <laughs> all right, dummy. Let's talk about magic. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, I mean, he, but even in soap, he was kind of crazy, right? Well, was he crazy? I guess, yes. I guess they always considered the ventriloquist crazy. Like, that. I think the ventriloquist right. name was Chuck. He couldn't be without Chuck. Yeah, that right. sounds right. He couldn't be without the doll. And Right. I mean, he, there, was, <laughs> there was definitely, yeah, Soap was a good show. Man, that was good. Yeah, it really was. Um, but so there were, so the granddaddy or the daddy of all sort of evil dummies or ventriloquist movies scary ventriloquist movies is the british uh omnibus film dead of night yes with michael redgrave right so would you say magic is just an update of the dead of night bit well i then went ahead and watched a whole bunch of other things including two twilight zone episodes which are about ventriloquists and today i watched an alfred hitchcock Presents, which was awesome. Right, I remember that one. Yep, yep. And that one I actually liked the most out of all three of those. That one's super creepy and features Billy Barty in the oh, reveal man. at the end as the ventriloquist dummy. And that one, it turns out 
the dummy is actually the person, and the person you keep seeing on stage is is an actual dummy. And I guess it's like they don't really go into it, but I guess it's the story of a of a of a of a small person uh-huh. who makes it in show business with this ventriloquist act where he's where he, but he's dressed up as the dummy. I don't know. That that one was like, oh, that's a different take on this. But none thing. of them turn out to be real. Like the the ones where they're actual dummies, it's all in the guy's head. Right? Cuz when I was a kid, I was I was certain that there would be a point where fats would be real in magic and and he isn't. Right? Well, <laughs> I, I thank you. I mean, I don't want to jump to the to the to the conclusion, but yes, that I feel like that's the central sort of hook and mystery of magic. And I think that they're that Richard Attenborough and and especially William Goldman, I think they're playing with those expectations. Like that's the question on everyone's mind. Like it feels like it's a psychological thriller, but at some point is it? They do things throughout, and we'll get into it. Where there are these moments where it's like, well, wait. How is Fats moving, or how are his eyes moving at this point? Right. He's nowhere near Anthony Hopkins. Right. But, but there's, but they, but from scene one, and again, I don't want to jump right into scene by scene yet. But but from scene one, they're playing with whose perspective are we watching this film from? There's all these, there's all these stories that Anthony Hopkins tells, mm. and and we're seeing, you know, we're seeing stuff, we're seeing stuff from his perspective. So if he's right. insane and thinks the dummy is real, there are times that, as the audience, we're seeing things through his eyes, even though we're not really seeing things literally through his eye. Like, it's not a point of view shot from Anthony Hopkins, but we're sort of in his mind, I guess, throughout the yeah. film from time to time. Yeah. And in fact, I would say that one one sort of device that, that feels like they're using, although I didn't study this carefully enough to totally be convinced is that there are t- there are times when it's when it seems like it's Anthony Hopkins is actually doing ventriloquism and so when fats talks the bees are not there and you know other things but then there's other times where fats is speaking very clearly and it's and it's sort of clear that that his dialogue has been post dubbed right. and nobody's worrying about keeping their mouth closed and i think I think you can interpret those scenes as being inside of Anthony Perkins' inside head. Inside his head, right, right. Oh, not right, Perkins, right. Hopkins. I probably will say that a million times. I apologize in advance every time I call Anthony Hopkins Anthony Perkins. I mean, this is sort of like a Sir. psycho riff in a way. Anthony but, Perkins. But, uh, but, but what I would say is that, yes, the answer Hopkins. in almost all of these movies and TV shows is that it's a psychological piece and it's about the effects of, you know... Uh, right. mental the, the mental health issues of the ventriloquist which and not that always there's an actual... disappointed me when i was a kid because i always wanted it to be real you know right and yeah i i didn't really get that until poltergeist where it was real you know it was and that 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 had the clowns and and the ventriloquist even though it wasn't a ventriloquist doll but it had clowns and the dolls in one nice package but and it going was real. back but going back to dead of night that <laughs> one is First of all, the, that Dead of Night is a bunch of dreams within dreams. It's a whole crazy fucking thing. Yeah. But I think that the ventriloquist story in Dead of Night is at the very least ambiguous about what's going on because there's a 
that that plot hinges on the idea that the that the dummy keeps talking to a rival ventriloquist and saying, "Hey, I'm sick of Michael Redgrave. I'd, I want to work with you." And Michael uh, Redgrave gets drunk one night and passes out, and this rival ventriloquist helps him into bed and puts the dummy, who's I think his name is Hugh. I get confused of all the different dummy names in these things, but he puts the dummy in bed with Michael Redgrave. And then later that night, this guy, this other ventriloquist is in his hotel room sleeping and Michael Redgrave bangs on the door and he's, this guy gets out of bed. He's all tired. He opens up and Michael Redgrave says, where is he? Where's the dummy? And the guy's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And Michael Redgrave pulls off this sheet and the dummy has made its way down to this other guy's hotel room. And Michael Redgrave thinks that the guy has stolen the dummy and he shoots him. Um... But at least as an audience, we've seen this guy leave the dummy in the other room and go about his business. So we don't. So that there is that. that so there's a couple of options. Either that right. like, we're not we're not seeing what happened after that. Michael Redgrave might have snuck into this guy's room and dropped it off. Maybe, right. but I don't. I think the implication of Dead of Night, which is much more of a ghost story, horror series of ghosts and horror stories, I think that one is a supernatural implication. I think. Yeah, the dummy crawled into his bed. Right. Right. But in magic, all of those questions seem to be answered the other way, except maybe the very last line of the movie, which I find really obnoxious and annoying and like maybe my least favorite part of it is when Anne Margaret starts doing like yeah. a, her own version of the fat's voice, I guess. And I think yeah. the, you're supposed to have the question in your mind, wait, did, you know, did fats take over her mind? No, I never got that. You just think it's a joke, right? Like that she's being funny. Like that she's... Right, she's being funny and she has no idea that he's dead. But it's it's like, I mean, your reading of it would be pretty good. But I don't think that's what's happening. And, you know, that freeze frame of the... It's just like, this isn't creepy. I don't think Richard Attenborough understands... Horror. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. When did you first see magic? Well, I mean, I first saw the commercial. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the commercial is, uh, that's the thing I think most people remember, actually, right? I mean, that commercial was terrifying. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I read the book, which was a pretty good book. But, I mean, I first saw it on TV. You know, it was on NBC. And, mm-hmm. and, Maybe that's part of the reason, like this movie and Audrey Rose and the little girl who lives down the lane, I have a hard time believing in my mind that those were movies that played in theaters. You know, they just seem like TV movies. And I can't tell if it's just because that's when I first saw them. And I saw them a lot on TV. Or if they're, they're just so flat, they look like TV movies. You know what I mean? I'm not exactly sure. Audrey Rose is, is, yeah, I just think is a really bad movie and totally feels, I mean, I don't know what it feels like. Little Girl Lives Down the Lane, I can see that that almost, that almost feels like a movie of the week. Yeah. Um, magic, I, de- I mean, Magic, I, you know, I saw in the theater and I, and okay. I was already, I already knew William Goldman was like a big he- screenwriting hero of mine, even in 1978. And right. so it was, I knew he wasn't writing this for TV um, you know, and I, I was totally excited to see it and I, and I remember liking it fine. And I, you know, when I watched it 
last week. I was like, oh, yeah, this is fine. This is good. I think that the thing that it, the, the thing that I think it feels like even more so than a TV movie is one of these British like kitchen sink sort of dramas. It's very, it's very small. It's very, it's, and it's also weirdly theatrical. Like I was just having this argument about something else with somebody where they were like, wouldn't have this been better as a, as a, as a play? And they were talking about uh-huh. Little Murders, which was a play. And they were like, right. imagine how much more powerful that was as a theatrical production than it was as a movie, which I totally disagree with. However, I can see magic working just fine as like a Broadway thriller, like an Ira Levin, like a like a sleuth or uh, whatever. Death those, trap. Death trap, like that thing. Like I think I would, I would, I don't know how, I'm surprised they haven't mounted a production of magic uh, off Broadway or Broadway. Uh, I think that would be all kinds of fun in a, in a goofy, like, you know creepy right. thriller and, and and having fat sort of you know do some you know have some cool theatrical stagecraft where fats is sort of on his own sometimes i think that would play like gangbusters in a theater uh in a in a live theater right. um but so you're not a big fan of of magic no i i am i mean i've seen it so many times mm-hmm. but but uh, uh there's a lot of stuff in it that that is flat and and i it doesn't play like that everybody would be so amazed by Corky's act, you know? I mean, again, to my point, like that we, we've gotten more sophisticated in our tastes, you know, we can argue about that all day, but, but it just like, even in the seventies, I have a hard time believing that people would be like, Oh my God, this is the best act ever, you know? And the scene with the, what's his face. It comes from TV. He comes David over. Ogden Stiers. Yes, right. Like he's just like he's like, oh, that's pretty good. That that's amazing. How does he do that? I, I don't believe he'd be amazed by it. Well, that whole scene and the, the thing about this movie is that it's it's called magic. And, and and Corky, when we first meet him, is not a ventriloquist. He's a magician and magician, he's doing right. like dumb card tricks in like a, like an open mic night or something, like a talent contest thing. Um, and then it's interesting that we don't, I always thought my memory of the movie is that we, we, that either he starts off with Fats or Mm. we should at least get the origin story of how he and Fats came to be teamed up. But I don't think we do. It's not that his, that old guy that he sees and he's talking to at the beginning, that's not his dummy, is it? Or maybe it is. No, he tells him that, you know, like you, you got to figure out a way to. To, you got to use your charms or something yeah, like you, that. Yeah, use right? your charm, right. And he can't do that. And so when the old guy dies, there's a lot more of that stuff in the book, too. Goldman, he knows how to set something up. And so yeah. the big reveal that that's what he's doing now is is pretty right. good. Right. And also the But book, also in the book, there's it, a lot more cursing. And so this idea of the X-rated dummy does get across more in mm-hmm. the book. And that that's the hook that people are going to see. That hip audiences are going to see this X-rated dummy who, you know, says cocksucker and fuck all right. the time. And I haven't read the whole book, but but my impression is two things. One, it's it's this book and it's written in all kinds of different perspectives. Some of the book is like a diary that turns out that it's like so theoretically written by Fats. Like some of it is Fats's diary. I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah. Like and Dracula? then some of yeah, and then some of it is like just like regular third person narrative, but also it seems like Corky is murderous long before he gets to the Catskills. 
Like there's mm. stuff that goes on in New York City where like at the beginning of the thing, like where he's right stealing things and killing people and all kinds of crazy shit. So uh, it's much less con- again. much less contained. Yeah, it's a fun book. It's super. But here, here's short, my quick. here's my question: Are we supposed to think that Anthony Hopkins is a New Yorker or that he grew up in the Catskills in this movie? Because he's oh right, yeah. He doesn't seem to be hiding his English accent. No, no. no. Well, I mean, they were talking about getting uh, the Levines wanted Jack Nicholson, right? Yes. Which would have been pretty amazing. I, I like to think about that sometimes. But I keep reading that the reason Jack Nicholson passed on it was because he didn't want to wear a hairpiece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, don't get me started on hairpieces again. Yeah. Other than David Ogden Stiers is wearing a crazy one in this movie. Uh, and Burgess Meredith, for some reason, has... Sh- well, I know the reason, but he's actually shaved his head. Right, Burgess Meredith, right. who like, seems older than dust, you know? But he has to actually shave his fucking head to make himself look more like Swifty Lazar, right? Or exactly. some other like yeah. you know famous agent. I mean, Bur- Burgess Meredith is definitely the MVP of this movie. He runs oh, yeah. away with it. He's great. Which, by the way, you could say about just about every movie that Burgess Meredith is in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and there's something I know Burgess Meredith wasn't in those Twilight Zone episodes with the dummies, but you think of him, you know, and he's linked with with Twilight Zone. So mm-hmm. having him in this movie does sort of recall that feeling of creepiness. You know, it's right there baked into yeah. him being on the screen. Yeah. And I was also, but I was also trying to figure out, like because of why De Niro bowed out. Oh man. Oh my God, I'd love to see that movie. There was a couple other people that got mentioned too. And I was like, wow, these are all kind of wild, wild ideas for playing Corky but yeah that would have been fun but but both Nicholson and uh De Niro would have been it would have been that thing where it's like they're they feel crazy from the get-go but I guess Hopkins is the same way I mean in this movie he certainly is like in his first scene he seems unhinged well he looks like a ventriloquist dummy yes yeah, which I think goes a long way, and that, right. and it made me wonder: is he wearing a hairpiece? And I don't think he is, uh, but he kind of looks like he is. I think they make it look faker than his hair actually is, right. probably to make him look more like Fats and vice he looks versa. Like he's in, he looks like he's an oasis, right? And and I was watching this with my wife, and Katie was like, "Why the fuck is the ventu- is the dummy's head so gigantic? It's like bigger than." <laughs> but I will say that the Billy Barty episode of Hitchcock also has a big I mean maybe it's because it's actually Billy Barty in a mask that's why his head is so big but there are some dummies throughout history that have that big head yeah so all right let's do it let's go see oh but I was gonna just say to you that you were pointing out the the flatness of the direction well I think yeah okay I thought you were talking about cinematography yeah the cinematography sure but I want to say, this movie was photographed by Victor J. Kemper. Uh-huh. This dude, I mean, we could do, we could probably do, like, the rest of 70 movies on the 70s just based on his, the movies he shot in the 70s. His, okay. his career started with, so well, let me give you his... Give just it to a, me. Just the highlights of his 70s career. Here we go. The Hospital. Okay. The Candidate, the Michael Ritchie thing, mm-hmm. with... Last of the Red Hot Lovers. 
Okay. Friends of Eddie Coyle, which is a great movie. Uh, yeah. The Gambler. Uh-huh. Reincarnation of Peter Proud, which I don't Ooh. love, but... Yeah, you're into that? Uh, I, you know, Mike Sarazen. He was everywhere. But think about that. And I just did. Those are all pretty flat-looking movies, though. Those, they're all pretty drab-looking movies. They're 70s-looking movies. They're not flat and drab. They're drab. They're grainy. They're, like, gritty. They look like, yeah, they look like a 70s movie. I, not more I, like, I not like TV lighting. I mean, I don't think of network as drab. I don't think of, you know, uh, I don't think on. of Mean Streets as drab. Right, okay, but wait a second. I want to talk about Reincarnation of Peter Pratt for one second. Only it's interesting because I just watched that a couple of years ago, and there's all kinds of exactly the same shit in Peter Proud as there is in Magic, where there's people trying to drown people in a lake. There's all this nighttime mm-hmm. lake stuff on a boat and paddles and getting hit over the head with paddles. So it's weird that he shot both of those movies. Anyway, Dog Day Afternoon. Okay. Mikey and Nikki, the Cassavetti, or no, the right. Elaine May movie. Slapshot. Okay. Now, wait, here's something for your argument, though. Audrey Rose. <laughs> Uh-oh. And here's another thing for your argument. Oh, God. Oh, God. Coma, which is a movie I Coma. love and we should talk about sometime. Well, I've been wanting to watch that again. Yeah. Uh, the Eyes of Laura Mars. Okay. Yeah. And Justice for All. Mm-hmm. The Jerk. And he started off the 80s with a little number called Night of the Juggler. So. Oh, Nice. And then he also shot Xanadu. <laughs> but I mean, and this guy shot it fucking everywhere. But yeah, like like what people think of New York 70s, he's mm-hmm. had a huge hand in. You know, right. Just from Dog Day Afternoon alone. Right. So yeah, so he's no slouch. Yeah, but I would argue with you that this is a flat or bad looking movie. It's I bad gr- looking? I would say it's, it? I'm saying it's not. I think you're okay. saying it is. Well, I'm just saying it, my question is, do I think it looks like a TV movie because I, that's where I first saw it? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, can't, I can't really right. find the answer to that. But you saw it in a theater, so you have a yeah. different viewpoint of it. Right. But, and looking at a, you know, a 185. I mean, is it as drab as the dead zone? Maybe not. <laughs> okay, whatever. Now we're talking nonsense. Uh-huh. Total nonsense. Although, let me offer a, a crumb to you. I, I rewatched X last night, post Pearl. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know. I mean, there's still, there's a lot of things about that movie that I think they get so wrong, but there's, it's good. And it's much better to watch it as a sequel to Pearl. Right. Um, yeah. Anyway. So, uh, all right, here we go. Magic. Uh, Starts off with Corky relaying this nightclub story to his ailing mentor. And as I said, there's no dummy of ventriloquism in this opening story. Corky's just a magician and is not one that's successful. And then uh, Burgess Meredith bring it turns out to be Corky's agent. He This is some time later. Uh, he brings right. David Ogden Stiers. Who's and also, from, we should point out that this is or Joseph and Richard Levine. Mm-hmm. A production and, and carnal knowledge, and so you've been you've been neck deep in Levine lately. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's all, and, and you know, and Margaret, who's and carnal Margaret. knowledge, yes. and, and this. Um, yeah. There's a lot of like, oh, I'm back here with these people again. Okay, right, cool. right, right. 
But Burgess Meredith brings David Ogden Stiers, who's like this network rep, to see Corky perform. And Corky introduces Fats to us, the audience, and to David Ogden Stiers. And, and so, oh, I meant to say this before, but I'm glad it's coming up in the scene by scene, is that one thing that people that I keep reading about that 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 people want to set straight is that there's this idea that ventriloquists can and do throw their voice. And the thing that impresses David Ogden Stiers in this scene is that Corky is throwing his voice. Corky's on stage right. and somebody's heckling him from the entire other side of the room over by the bar. God and it turns out sense. it's it turns out it's fats. Uh, right. and Corky's been throwing his voice. But that's not an actual thing. <laughs> like people can't oh, really yeah? do that. Yeah. No, they can't. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a that's a magic trick. It's a fiction. Po- it's a fiction and it's a trick. I mean, and maybe you can, maybe Corky has arranged that trick with the sound system in that club. I don't know. Uh, I don't think so. I think it's like a trick being played on us, the audience, and we're supposed to believe that it, that, that can happen in real life. And that one of the, in fact, he does it more than once, right? Isn't but, later in the story, doesn't he throw his voice somewhere? I can't remember, but I do know that Corky doesn't do tricks. Remember he explains to Anne Margaret that he doesn't do tricks? Yes. And then yeah. turn then he pulls a trick on her. Right. <laughs> yeah, Corky doesn't do tricks. But he does a trick or somebody's doing a trick on us and on David Ogden Stiers. Well, I mean, uh, this isn't the only movie that talks about throwing their voice. This is No. This this no, is like not. This is a a thing, a device that we've all accepted as real even though you say it's not real. Exactly. Sort of like cops have to tell you that they're cops. And we right. just accept that that's, <laughs> right. that's, you know. Right. And we learned on Breaking Bad that that is not true. Right, right. Um, so one of the tricks of the film is, 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 is figuring out whether we're seeing things through Corky's eyes or we're seeing things objectively. And in this, you know, in these early scenes, there's this question as, about whether Corky is lying like lying when he tells Merlin the story of how successful he was at talent night or whether he's actually delusional and believes that he was a big hit uh, I see. in that yeah. first scene and then we find out an early answer is that he's lying but by the end of the movie I don't we don't I don't think we think he's lying anymore we think he's completely delusional and out of his mind and living in this crazy fantasy world where he thinks that Fats is controlling his life. Right. I mean, uh, Fats is a crutch. And, and I mean, I, I, I'm not sure. All right, well, all right, go on. Well, so then backstage, Burgess Meredith brings David Ogden Stiers to see Corky. David Ogden Stiers wants to, is excited, and Burgess Meredith... What's his name? Is like, oh, his name is something Ben Green, and they keep he keep calling him Gang Green. Green. Yeah, yeah Gang right. Green. Uh, so Gang Green is, is telling uh, Corky that uh, that he thinks he can work out a network deal, and in six months they'll they'll meet up at the Four Seasons, and right, everything should be all set. Um, and I think somebody says maybe it's I can't remember if it's Burgess Meredith or if it's uh, Anthony Hopkins says you, they're talking about being on TV and they're like, well, we can't do a ventriloquism. You can't misdirect a goddamn camera. Right. And I'm like, that's the dumbest thing anyone's ever said. All you, I know. All you can I, do is. <laughs> none of it. N- none of it makes. 
that whole thing where he's like, oh, you know, like he tells him, here's the thing, kid. And he's like, oh, like, like a light bulb goes off in his head. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. he's got that dummy. That's how you misdirect it. You know, and it's just kind of like, I, uh, these people are too sophisticated to be, they're supposed to be too sophisticated to be uh, bamboozled by this ruse. I, I just don't buy it. Right. Well, and that's that. That's the thing about Corky's character in general. Is like, is he a rube? Is he totally naive? What's his deal? He seems naive in the beginning, and he seems like he's like he's playing younger than than he is than uh, yeah. and more American. Anthony Hopkins is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then we cut to the four seasons six months later. Uh, and and Burgess Meredith does indeed have this offer for Corky. He's been offered this network pilot, but there's to do a pilot. How come nobody in movies seems to know what a pilot is? How come uh, scene after scene we get a, what's a pilot? You know, it's like, don't we know what a pilot is by now? Right. Well, it's funny in this movie because there's that, but then there's all these like pop culture references yeah. that Goldman throws in there that are so dated now that to the point where like if I showed this movie to my kids they would have no idea like Barbara Walters is mentioned they don't know <laughs> right. or maybe they know who she is from The View or whatever the fuck she does uh, Rich Little gets mentioned it's like you know nobody knows who that is anymore right um, anyway then we get our first real sign well it's not our first sign but definitely like a red light with Corky goes off he's like I'm not one, the, the one thing that he needs to do to get this pilot is go through some sort of medical exam. Exam, right. Uh, and he's like, I'm not doing that shit. And he, you know, he says it's about the principal. And then that cuts to a scene where he's back at his hotel and Burgess Meredith is in a room full of lawyers. And he's got this, there are some funny lines that William Goldman writes. And, and I like the one where he says, uh, I'm with these three geniuses. Their IQs mu- alone must total a hundred. <laughs> um, uh, but Corky is like, I'm not doing this fucking thing. Go, I, I'm saying no to the whole deal. And he runs away. He go, leaves the hotel, grabs a cab, and hightails it to the Catskills. And there's this scene when he first arrives in whatever small town the Catskills is that I think is so hilarious. Like they pull him out. He, I guess he asked the cab to just pull it in front of this house, and maybe it's his old house. I don't know. Yeah, it's a little unclear to me. But there's this family, and they're, they're doing every fucking tropey thing that a family can do. The father and the son are like throwing this football. <laughs> right. The other kid is like whittling this piece of wood, like he's making a horse out of a piece that's of wood. That's quirky. That's oh, quirky th- whittling. I think that's quirky. Oh, you think that that's him having a flashback to that? I think so, yeah. Ah, and then in reality, that house is abandoned? Right. Ah, God That's what I think is happening. That makes sense. And the mom is on the porch. So that's our one look into quirky childhood. Right. Okay. Okay. So he was always in the dummies. And so then when they go to the cemetery, is that also Corky seeing a flashback of being at a funeral? I think so, yeah. Oh, I totally didn't get that. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. All right. That makes a lot more sense, actually. Right. Nobody's now, there. Like, he doesn't have to, any people. He has to be. Yeah, I need to watch that doesn't. again. Yeah. I feel like he's like, yeah, I, I, 
I'm so stupid. I'm watching these scenes and I'm thinking like, oh, he keeps bumping into these weird scenes <laughs> that are supposed to be saying, I don't know what to him, that he's, this right. is where he belongs. But okay. Gotcha. So at some point, one of his parents dies. It's hard to tell like who's being buried in that, in that scene. Yeah. Maybe both, maybe both of them. I don't know. I don't know what it, maybe, I don't know. Maybe he killed them. Yeah. But again, I'm wondering, so Corky's supposed to be American? Like, he really did grow up here. So this is even more proof that this character is supposed to be from the Catskills. Not that he came over from overseas in his high school years where he met Anne Margaret, but that he right. literally grew up here with that I think so, voice. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Let's suspend some disbelief. It's a New, new England voice. He's no Idris Elba, let's just say, Anthony Hopkins <laughs> with his American accent. But he's, I don't know. He's, put him in with a lion. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Uh, so then he takes the cab to the cabins, which turns out to be where we're going to spend the rest of the movie. And he has this conversation with this New York cab driver about, um, uh, not mentioning to anyone that he's taken him here. And this guy, of course, takes his money and is immediately going to just tell anybody. Right. Or at least Burgess Meredith later on. So then he goes down and, um, knocks on the door. Uh, and it turns out it's Anne Margaret uh, as Peggy, who is running this whole thing. And what we don't know is the audience uh, and what they don't know about each other. Well, they know about each other. They think that each one has forgotten the other. They think that each one has forgotten the, the other one. And then we learn in a couple of in a, a series of scenes after their initial meeting that they both remember each other. Right. And he comes back to the house and... Uh, you know, they both reveal that they that they knew each other, um, right? And then they have some drinks, and we get this another one of these flashbacks, and this is the same thing where 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 Corky is telling her, just like he tells Merlin at the beginning, a story, but we're watching that story, and it's completely not the way he tells it, right? And again, we're like, is he lying? Is he delusional? But again, it's, you know, I think he's lying. Um, I was reading this Washington Post review of the movie, and they did not like it at all. But they came up with this. They said they really blew an opportunity here, and they pitched this sort of other idea for the plot, which I think is actually a really fun one. And their idea is, what if Anne Margaret is is like a Norman Bates psychopath? She's running this, like, motel just like a Norman Bates thing. What if Corky the psychopath arrives and she's she's also a psychopath who's been killing people and it's these two psychopaths who don't even know that the other one is a psychopath. They're, just, they're both operating in their own... Uh, what's the word? Psychopathy? No. Psychosis? Psychosis? Uh, yeah. Psy- well, I mean, that's, that's a very different movie. And whoever yeah. wrote that review should get off their ass and write a movie probably that's more like a Ty West that's almost like a Pearl thing yeah somebody had come to visit Pearl who was also a crazy person which I guess does happen I mean she uh, Anne Margaret doesn't have eyebrows so she's closer to crazy right there what happened to Anne Margaret's eyebrows what was going on with people that they were shaving their eyebrows off and replacing it like yeah. This wasn't that close to an accident that she had, was it? Because that accident was like the end of the 60s, right? 
Yeah, but no, but in the disco era of the 70s, women were doing that same thing. Like, I remember there was this Madonna video where she was trying to do this whole Studio 54 thing, and she also had, like, shaved her eyebrows for whatever that video was. And, yeah, it's crazy when... I I don't know. I never understand that. I always think it looks hideous. It ruins Anne Margaret for me. Didn't Pamela Anderson do that her whole career? Like, drew on these crazy eyebrows? There's a lot of weird things going on there. Yeah, the eyebrows, the lack of eyebrows ruins... And Margaret for me. It's just like, uh, why? Why did this happen? But here's the thing that makes you know that this movie was made in the 70s is that there's just nonstop talking about, I won't even say her breasts because all they say is boobs. There's so much boobs talk and it's, she's never offended by it at all. It's never, uh. it's never used as some sort of like, I can't believe that's all they care about. It's like, yeah, she is defined by her boobs. Right. And we get, we get plenty of chances to see them. I feel like she's more naked in this than she even is in Carnal Knowledge. Yeah, I don't know about that. Mm. <laughs> uh, anyway, so 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 after this uh, nighttime drinks and happy happy and the high school flashback, he goes back to the cabin with Fats, who of course is not as into this thing, and this sets up one of the central conflicts, which is that Fats right is jealous. Can see the yeah. writing on the wall. Yeah, he's jealous, and he's also, you know, I mean, Anthony Hopkins. I don't know if he starts ta- saying this this early on, but he's like, "I'm going to stop doing my, you know, I'm just going to go travel the world with with, right. with Peggy, right? And you're not part of it." Right. Um, but now there's the other now the another guy who even more so than Victor J. Kemper. When you click on his Wikipedia and you look at at you look at the amount of output this dude had. Jerry Goldsmith. Jerry Goldsmith, yeah. I mean, there's he did hundreds. We had a we had this guy uh, uh, Nicholas Meyer, the director, writer director, was at Cinematheque this weekend. And time after time, uh, which is a movie you say you're not a big fan of, but you should be, uh, was uh, scored by Miklos. Roja, who he mm. and 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 Nick Meyer kept talking about him at the Q and A's and about how he'd done like a hundred soundtracks and was rattling them off. But that guy's got nothing on Goldsmith. I mean, it's crazy how many movies this. Can you, if you look at this guy's output, can you even imagine it? It's crazy. It's nuts. I mean, he's doing like five movies a year, like full. But what do we think of his score here? Do you think his score is a success here? Because no. there are some real clunkers going <laughs> Well, on. I was going to ask you, it seems like Fats has this theme and it's a harmonica yeah. riff. Why? Yeah. I don't know. Like, it's like this carnival barker type of thing. Is it, and though? That's not I, a carnival. A harmonica is not the same as a carnival. But it sounds like a... I mean, it's disjointed and weird. Mm. And, I mean, that scene where they're having sex and it goes back and forth... I mean, that's unintentionally funny, right? Yeah. That's hilariously bad. Yeah, it's weird and bad. Yeah. yeah and that, the music yeah. is a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a great score. But, I mean, if I was cranking out 10 a year like Goldsmith, I guess I'd have the occasional clunker, too. So right. I'm not right. here to, like, badmouth Jerry Goldsmith, who also... No, no one's badmouthing Jerry Goldsmith. You know, but, I mean, this, is, this one's a little syrupy, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's got that oh, yeah. sort of, it feels like there's a sagging middle section, but I guess there really isn't. 
it's just it, in my memory every time I'm like, all right, this is the part where I'm going to get bored. And I, I don't. And I don't know why I feel that way. And maybe it's just because of the score. Well, it's a little. I think I do think the movie's a little longer than it than it needs to be or that it should be. I don't know what I would cut, and I we're going to get to right. the point where there's there's three like set pieces in a row, and they're, they're they're the center of the film. The middle of the film, I think, I'm going to argue, is far and away the best part of the film. And there's three great scenes in a row that without yeah. like the movie would suck, but with them, the movie's I think a good movie. Um, but but talking about them having sex, I really like this sex scene almost entirely because of one thing, and that's that Anne Margaret she has her hand like in between their faces while they're kissing and having sex, and it's like I don't remember, I can't remember another non pornographic movie at least where 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 a woman or anyone is doing that. She's got her like fingers in his mouth while they're kissing, and I'm like, oh, that's like an intimate, weird sexy thing Touch, that yeah. you don't see yeah um yeah so i'm digging that sexy time scene um <laughs> Sam margaret come on okay but now here comes the three scenes that i think make this movie and the first is probably the best of them and if the movie only existed because of this scene it's like okay i understand why you I exist think i'm going to disagree with you here but go ahead all right this is burgess meredith arrives he sees corky and fats fighting and that's I guess not I'm the skip- first. That's not the first of them. The first of I'm them. I'm is- skipping the Corky and Fats argument. But right, but that's not the first of them. The first of them is the. the oh, card I'm sorry. Scene. Right, I'm sorry. I skipped. Right, sexy times is after the card trick. The right. first of them is the card trick, and right. it's not my favorite of the three scenes. No. I'm going to say are great. Definitely not. Definitely not. It's 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 hammy, but um, yep. it, it's it's crucial to the plot because it comes up later on in a great way. Yeah. And it's the trick, it's the magic trick that is being played on Anne Margaret and also us as the audience. Because we're not in on whether or not this was an actual trick or not until we learn about it much later on in the movie. We learn about it when she learns about it. Fats tells us the story of this trick, right? But but I get it that he's just trying to sabotage the relationship. And I feel like it was real at the time and fats is is saying that it wasn't real and he does it with stewardesses and that's a lie meant to like push Anne margaret away oh i think you're totally wrong oh anthony hopkins does not he doesn't for a second say that's a lie he says don't do this don't say it he's he doesn't. He's not disputing uh, Fats's argument at all. He's just saying, "Stop it! Don't ruin my fucking relationship." No, Anthony Hopkins, like, like when that scene happens and he gets the card, he is not acting there. You know, he's like really, he's like, "I didn't fail." I mean, that's a real moment for him. Nope. Oh, really? You really think he's putting one over on Peg? Yes, that's his whole. No that's, way. No, no, that's the real center. Well, there's two center. There's two like things, but that's one of them. I think, absolutely. No, that's that's him. That's where we learn. Oh, Corky really is a good magician, and uh, you know he can do this thing. And this is his. This is his coup de gras. This is his. Yeah, this is, it, it's not so much yeah, about he's, he's done losing. this a million times with stewardesses, but Fats reveals how the trick works in that in that later scene. Like he says, you cut the deck, and then that card is on the bottom, and it's 
there's nothing easier than 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 seeing what that card is based on that whatever that thing that they do where they cut the I, I don't really understand the mechanics of it, but Fats explains the mechanics of the trick. He isn't just saying it's a trick. He's telling you how the trick works. But then that means the, the entire scene between him and Anne Margaret is a lie. Yes. And I don't, I, I don't know. I don't believe that. I do. That's, his reaction, there's nothing there that gives us, there's no tells to the audience that says he knows what he's doing here. Right. Yeah, I, re- I reject this reading. I reject your reading. I think the whole film relies on there not being any tells. Like, this is where they're trick. I think, I think you're underselling the movie. I think you're underestimating what Attenborough and William Goldman are doing. Like, I think they, I am, because I think this doing. is a pretty straightforward film. Like, I, I just think everything in this is what it is. I don't really think that there's any tricks I, I, you know, like the fact that like, you know, as a kid, I kept wanting the dummy to be real. It's mm-hmm. not real. It's all basically in his mind. What they're telling you is what's happening. I mean, this is, everything is anchored in this reality that the movie is set up. And, and mm-hmm. I think that that thing at the end is just Fats telling a lie to push her away. I, he is, no, I, he's telling her stuff okay. to push her away. He's telling her what. He, but he knows it's going to wreck the relationship. But and that scene of yeah. the cards is a lie. A yeah. trick played on all of us. I just don't think the movie's playing that way, you know? Oh, I, I, just, I, I when, when you go back, go back and watch that scene later on and find one part, not in, the, not in the actual card trick scene, but in the scene where Fats reveals, show me one second or one line of dialogue where Hopkins is saying, that's not true, that's a lie. That's not what happened. Right. Yeah. Um, and why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he have the argument? <laughs> I mean, it's crazy in that. And, and this, is the, this is the other trick of this movie, is that by this point, we've actually convinced ourselves as an audience that these are two characters who can argue with each other. And that Fats has his agenda, and Anthony Hopkins has his agenda. You know, and we're totally buying it. We're totally into the idea of these two sentient if what you're saying is true, then then that scene is terrible, and and that that card trick scene is terrible, and the movie is trying to have it both ways. You know, well, I do trying think to have the movie this, is having it both ways. This catharsis, when he's like going mumbling over and over, "I didn't fail," and he's you know he's he's about to cry. You know, he's like having a real emotional moment, and if that trick, not trick. If that thing wasn't real, uh, like you're suggesting, then that scene should be played a completely different way. Well, I mean, he shouldn't be like yelling at her and like, like, God damn it, we got to do this, you know. And but he he's, is. That's and how that he's, scene's playing that way. But that's but if but but take I it from the first. But listen, I wait. Don't think the movie's got that. It, it, but listen, but if take it, take it at, again. It's not that you. It's not that you can't take this all at face value it's just a different face a magician if he's a, if he's a good magician and apparently he's good enough to be on network tv with a pilot <laughs> and he's had this yeah. successful career how else is a good magician going to play that card trick scene other than that way having that emotion and bringing that acting into it 
is exactly how you're going to sell it to Anne Margaret. He can't do anything other than the way he's doing it. If he does it any less emotionally, she's not going to buy into the whole thing. But what I'm also what I also want to say is that the emotions behind it are true. He does love her. He has been pining for her since high school. He does want to be in a relationship with her. But just as you see in every other scene in the movie, he's a desperate loser who has no confidence in his ability to do it without his arsenal of magic tricks. Right. Yeah. No, I I I I don't think so. I, I I reject it, but we can move on. Okay, yeah, exciting, good times, sexy times. Yeah. Uh, okay, <laughs> so I like I like the card trick, even if it's uh, even if you think my interpretation of it ruins the movie. Right. Uh, then the sex scene I like, and then okay, then Burgess Meredith arrives. It's the best scene in the movie. Finds Corky and Fat. This is the best scene in the movie. Finds them fighting. And then asks Corky to accept this challenge, which is to just not talk for five minutes. Well, can he? Oh, not not have Corky shut up. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, fats. Yeah, yeah. Make fats shut up. Right. And it's great. It's brilliant. But it plays fast and loose with time. You know, he's like, Mm -hmm. we're sitting there watching the movie for um, over a minute, and he's like, thirty seconds. Okay, but now. I didn't mean to get into another argument with you, but here we go. I knew this. Okay, this is the way he sees it. Okay, you see. No, no, no. I'm not saying that either. I'm saying I believe when I watch this scene that the Burgess Meredith character is deliberately giving him incorrect time readings. How? How are you getting any of this? This is all. This is not stuff that's being provided us. Via yes. what we see on screen or what yes. we're hearing in the thing. Yes, it is. He, Where? What kind of leap are you <laughs> making? Because that, Burgess Meredith has just seen what he knows is a psychotic breakdown. Right. He's walked in on this guy. And now you are he, making leaps left and right in this no, movie. But he, for a while now, Burgess Meredith has been questioning this guy's mental health. And he's trying to trigger him into having a a breakdown so that he'll go seek help and seek a doctor. So he's trying to put as much pressure on him as he can. He's not going to make this any easier for him. Uh And every time he asks what time it is, I think he's shaving like 10 seconds off of it and saying it's been 45 seconds, even though it's been like a minute just to make, just to make Anthony Hopkins even sweatier and more nerve wracking. It could be that they're that they're just playing with us as an audience and they don't want to sit there. I don't believe I believe Burgess Meredith is deliberately giving him incorrect time. But I or I'm not gonna fight it's you just as bad hard. editing. It's just bad editing and pacing. I don't think that they, they don't care about actual time. Do you want me to read this editor's credits? <laughs> Who's the editor? He edited this guy, John Bloom. He edited French Lieutenant's Woman, uh-huh. John Badham's Dracula, Who'll Stop the Rain, uh, okay. A Chorus Line. Finally a good movie, Who'll Stop the Rain. <laughs> Nobody's a Chorus Fool. Line. Nobody's oh, Fool. That's a great movie. Yeah, no, I, I, he, he could still fuck up time. I mean... French Lieutenant's Woman and Chorus Line. The most sort of like uh, triggering like sense memory that I had watching this movie last week was 
when Burgess Meredith is throwing out those times, I'm like, that it can't be that short of a time. And then I immediately remembered feeling that way every single time I've seen that movie. Right. You know? Yeah. And that made me think, oh, he's deliberately doing this. Right. So you took a leap. I just think the you design on this movie's side. Well, I just think either for with one explanation or another, this this scene is deliberately trying to get you as an audience member to feel what Corky's feeling that, oh my God, this is taking so much longer than I was hoping it would and that I'm not going to be able to do this. Now, whether that's Burgess Meredith's plan or that's the design of the editing, uh, either way, I'll take it. I believe it's, I believe Burgess Meredith is in on that, but even if he isn't, I don't think it's bad editing. I think that's the, that they're deliberately doing that so that the audience is in the same position as Corky. Right. Well, see, I thought you were going to say that's in Corky's mind and, it, you know, the time is stretching out in his mind. That's what I thought. Well, I kind of am say. saying that. I didn't think you were going to attribute motives to Burgess Meredith that, uh, the, that just simply aren't there. Well, I think it, you know, it's a justification as to why he get ba- gets bashed in the head in the next scene because he's been such a dick. <laughs> Manipulative dick. <laughs> yeah, like I, you know. Okay, All right. I think it. Wa- I think the film wants you to be on Anthony Hopkins' side. This is one of those movies where you're supposed to like sort of side with the psycho. Uh huh. I mean, which I guess all these movies, you know, for for a, for a decent amount of psycho, I think, or some part of psycho, you're you're sort of hoping yeah, that you, you're, you don't you're, know you're, he's the killer. No, no, never mind that. Once you know he's the killer, or whatever, even if you think he's just aiding and abetting his mother, right. like you're hoping that car is going to sink the rest of the way. Right, right. But, but no one knows that he didn't do it at that point. You know what I mean? You're not supposed to know. On your first viewing, you don't know that he's the killer yet. Certainly, but you've certainly been... You've certainly been on the side of and in the head of Janet Lee, and then all of a sudden she's dead. Right. And you shouldn't. I mean, I think Hitchcock has to work to, or he should have to work to make you sort of root for Norman Bates for the next twenty minutes of the movie as he cleans up the murder. Right. But it's an interesting phenomenon, and it happens here, and it happens all the time. It's like, shit. I hope they can get that blood stain off of the. Yeah. carpet and all that stuff yeah. you're like rooting for the for not to get busted and and when you think about it you're like why am i rooting for this because if we were in that situation we we, we would hope that we wouldn't get busted we, sure. we don't want to go to jail yeah <laughs> right uh-huh well anyway this is my favorite burgess meredith quote and it comes in that scene where i know corky says something tim and he says uh he never forgets his lines you know, he says, I've lived through Tallulah Bankhead and the death of vaudeville, kid. You're not going to whatever shake me. But I love that. Another right. cultural reference that like nobody would know what the fuck he's talking about, Tallulah Bankhead. But it's, I love that there are so that there's so much like sort of insider show business stuff built right. into this script for no real reason. But it's kind of funny to me that it's all in there. Right. It's almost like dropping names. Yeah. Yeah. So then there's the head bashing in the woods. And, you know, this, I mean, this movie, it's interesting because it's 78. So it really, it feels like it's, it feels in some way like it's a reaction to the sort of slasher film structure. And I suppose Giallo films have been around long enough that 
that it could be borrowing from that. But the, but it is it does become this sort of like okay now we're gonna get a murder every couple minutes and then there's the cleanup of the murder and that stuff and you know. But I don't a, but think it, it's see. I don't think it's see. I don't think it sees any further than Hitchcock as far as suspense mechanics go. Hmm. You know. I mean, even well, using the dummy is, you know, reminiscent of the knife and Psycho. Sure. And I don't mean, and well, but I'm on, but, but Psycho is maybe the grandfather of all the slasher films and, and or just, oh, what I'm, what I'm really trying to say about this is it's just, it's a total B movie with this, with this sort of A-list talent. But what I'm, I'm not saying so much the mechanics of it. I'm saying the structure of it. It becomes this like. House by the Woods thing where it's like a procession of victims and suspense scenes as to whether the next person is going to become a victim or not. Right. Um, right. But which is what which Hitchcock movie is that is that like other than Psycho? I mean, this is, I suppose, nothing more than a sort of psycho. Yeah. At the end of the I mean, I, I don't think it's hip to the slasher movies. No, it's not. Of the it time. You know what I mean? No, yeah. there aren't any. It's 78. Like Halloween is coming. Is This is being made. Yeah, but there's still stuff like Wes Craven, Last House on the Left, and there's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I don't think this movie is hip to that stuff. You know? I think the furthest it can see is Hitchcock. And I don't know that it's... I don't know that Attenborough is trying to do any of that stuff. Right. Or cares about any of that stuff. William Goldman, I don't know. I couldn't really find much where Goldman talks about this, either the book or the movie. So I don't really know what he was, what he had in his mind. Right. I mean, it's hard to avoid just, you know, everything leading back to dead of night, but hmm. maybe not. So Burgess Meredith heads out to his car. Anthony Hopkins chases him down with fats, beats him over the head. Uh, and Margaret interrupts the beating with a question about asparagus tips. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you're the man. You have to make the, you have to make the choices. You have to decide. Right. Anthony Hopkins takes Fats back to the cabin and fixes his his head that he's bashed in while bashing in Burgess Meredith. That's a nice touch. I like that. Yeah. Um, then he drags Burgess Meredith into the lake, uh, and in uh, what I think is a legit. I mean, I think that there's, I think there are some good, I think there are some pretty good jump scares in this movie and some, yeah. and some pretty good suspense sequences. And I think the thing where Burg- it keeps cutting to Burgess Meredith's hands sort of floating in the lake and you're just like, you don't for a second think this guy's not dead. Um, and then he's not. And then there's right. a pretty good like sort of yeah. wrestling match in the lake. Then it's the morning after and we don't really know how that fight has resolved itself. Um, but uh, Anne Margaret shows up to let Corky know that her husband, Duke, is back. God, this Duke. I mean, what what I like about Ed Lauder, who's one of these guys, you're like, wow, he's, he, he feels like he's been in every movie I've ever right. seen. And then you look at his list, and I'm like, I'm not even really sure what I remember him most from. It's what funny, he's in... What most from? I don't know. He's in the remake of The Longest Yard, but doesn't he feel like he should have been in the original The Longest Yard? Seems like it. But he's not. He's in. Like I mean, like he, even in this movie, he seems like he's been making movies. Yeah, he seems like a veteran in this movie. But yeah. you're saying he wasn't. No, no. He listen. He he was in a million things, and his first screen credit is in 1972. In 72, he was in the New Centurions. He was in Hickey and Boggs. 
He was in this movie Bad Company. It's just a bunch of movies that I'm like, I only ever saw this movie. Oh, no, he is in the original Longest Yard. Okay. So he's in both versions of the Longest Yard. Okay. Uh, But, you know, he's in movies like Executive Action and The Midnight Man, Satan's Triangle. He's in French Connection 2. He's in Family Plot. Now, Family Plot is a movie I saw like a million times when it came out. So maybe I remember him from that. He's also in the 76th version of King Kong. He's in the he's in the Chicken Chronicles with Steve Gutenberg. He's in uh, uh, he's in Cujo. Okay. He's in I, Death I, Wish Three. I can't believe I remember him from any of these movies. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, but no, you're making he was, a good point. But here's the thing: he was in a ton of TV stuff all through the 70s. Like, there isn't a single TV show, like a draw, like an act, like a cop show or anything that he wasn't on. He what was about, in, yeah. Go, go ahead. He was in what? Well, he was in Streets of San Francisco, Cannon, uh-huh. Ironside, Mannix, The Waltons, Kojak, <laughs> Beretta, Police Story, Charlie's Angels, The Rockford Files, Wow, uh, The Jericho Mile, BJ and the Bear, Hawaii Five O. I mean, literally, the guy was in every fucking Everything. show. Yeah. yeah. But what about the '90s and the '80s? What was he in then? Yeah. So in the '80s on TV, he was in Saint Elsewhere. Magnum P.I., The A-Team, um, Miami Vice, Murder, She Wrote, The Equalizer, The Father Jesus. Dowling Mysteries, Star Trek Next Generation, Homicide, Life on the Street. Is uh, he in Dumb and Dumber or any any of those kind of movies? Oh, you want his big screen output. Yeah. So in 19... Uh, in ni- starting in 1989, he was in Fat Man and Little Boy... Born on the 4th of July, My Blue Heaven, The Rocketeer, True Romance. He's in True Romance. I don't remember him in any of those movies. (laughs) He's in Leaving Las Vegas. This is freaky. He's in Mulholland Falls. I've Uh, seen every one of those movies, and I cannot picture him in any of them. Wow, what a guy. Yeah, character actor. So this is the movie that I remember him from. Yeah. Well... I would say his performance, but also his character as written, is much more sort of nuanced and interesting than you think it's going to be for the first yeah. two-thirds of the performance. When they go out on the boat together, you actually, I do anyway, start to feel, and I feel like Corky does, maybe, start to feel yeah. some empathy for him. Like, right, like yeah. oh, this guy's not bad. He's just trying to save his marriage. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's really good. Yeah. But then he stupidly has to go investigate what's going on in the cabin, which is never a good idea. No, but that is also the point where you go, is Quirky real? Right. You know? Well, and that's the scene that it feels like the whole movie's being built up to. And, and to your point, I feel is the evidence that this movie is built for you to wonder, is Quirky, is Fats an actual functioning entity or not? Right, but don't you think it's blown that with, with you know him being used as a blunt instrument in the, the earlier no. scene because he's not flying through the air. No, I know, but in this, but what, but right, but I don't think that that I don't think that precludes him being able to function on his own. Okay. Or at least I don't. Now that you say that, I'm like, oh yeah. Well, why would he this if he can also do that? But I love I'm, how you go into the mat for this movie. <laughs> you were you were just willing to just 
spackle no, over all of its holes. But I'm standing by the idea that when you're in, when you're watching the movie, when that sequence comes, even as many times as I've seen this movie, when I watched it last week, I still couldn't, I couldn't remember. It's been so long since I've seen this movie, I couldn't remember whether it turns out that Fats, like which which side of the fence this movie lands on. And when that scene comes on, I'm like, wait. Because by that scene, by that scene, I'm like, oh no, this is just a psychological horror movie. But then right. as soon as that happens, I'm like, oh no, wait, his eyes are moving. And oh no, da, 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 and, oh, he stabs him. Wait, what the fuck? And I'm like, oh yeah, right, he's behind the curtain. And I'm like, right. Okay, but but for the majority of that scene, I'm like, oh, right, this is going, this does go in that other direction where he's doing this thing. I, I at least thought I'm, my memory of the film was that it's more ambiguous than I actually think it is. Right. That they do leave some room for doubt. Now I don't think they do, unless you're willing to accept this dumb Anne Margaret line at the end as some sort of hint at a sequel or something. That she's possessed by the spirit. <laughs> I never got that. Well, I mean, I mean, I it's think, a it's but, a good it's an interesting reading. But it's but. But I think the problem is that the her line reading it just it's weird. It's one of these things, there's a couple times in this movie where I think what they're trying to portray is that somebody's doing ventriloquism, that she's actually doing, trying to like speak with her mouth, right. not moving. But again, for whose benefit? Because <laughs> there's nobody looking at her. She doesn't even think anyone's looking well, at her. Well, she sounds like she's doing a Humphrey Bogart impersonation. But I think she's doing a fats... But, but, yeah, right. yeah, she is, right. I think but it's the a way terrible... she ca- keeps calling him a bastard, it right. just bugs the shit out of me. Right. I think that if John Carpenter had made this movie, I mean, you, the possibilities are endless, but that fucker knew how to land land an ending every an single ending, time. Yeah. 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 And this movie does everything but landing. That ending does falls flat it's, on its face. Whatever yeah, the fuck's supposed bad. to be going on. It's like, am I supposed to be creeped out? What's going on here? I'm going to go <laughs> in the other theater and watch the Halloween. Yeah. Or Steven Spielberg at one point was, they were talking to him about making this movie. That right. would have been pretty fucking great too. Right, right. So we, uh, I'm sorry, going backwards a little bit, Duke shows up, there's a tense coffee and breakfast, uh, and again, a lot of talk about Anne Margaret's boobs. Um, then there's the discovery of um, Gangrene's Rolls Royce, and by this point, the movie's just like one sort of like suspense scene after another, and I'm sort of, Im- I'm impressed by like the way Goldman keeps building these barriers and 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 forcing Corky to like figure out how to you know get past them like he right I think he does do a nice job of like throwing things like oh then Burgess Meredith's body washes up and there's right. there's like one thing after the other and it's kind of fun you're kind of caught up in it and the movie does kind of move and I'm like yeah okay this thing's got yeah. a rhythm to it and it's um so Duke and Peggy have this fight, then Duke goes fishing with Corky, and like I said, it's nice that we sort of get a humanized version of Duke. Um, then Duke searches the cabin, and there's that, there's the question about fats, and it turns out, no, it's definitely Anthony Hopkins. Peggy arrives in a boat uh, after Corky has cleaned up that mess. Um, then Peggy visits, th- then meanwhile, oh, Scene number 32, uh, where Corky is really letting Fats know that he he has got plans with Peggy. Right. He's not going to do a be a ventriloquist anymore. And it's a scene that I have 
I, I, what choice did I have but to write on this thing? This scene is called "Pack Up the Fats." Mm. That's for That's you. Not bad. I know you. I know you like a good look. Not bad. Yeah. But this is a great scene, and that whole thing when he's in the when he's in the box, and he's like, "I'll tell." And it's like, yeah. oh man, it's creepy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then Peggy shows up. And that's when Fats reveals that the psychic card trick was a trick, or not, <laughs> depending on your interpretation of, uh-huh. okay. of that. I appreciate. I wish, it. I wish I could find like a. I'll look. I'll try. I'll try to get a definitive answer from somebody involved with the movie if I can figure it out. See if I can okay. get Coleman to cough up some info, or go to. The, I'll go to the book or something and see how they play it out in the book. Yeah, I can't. I don't know how. I don't know how how faithful this is to the book at all. I remember it being, you know, it's like the typical. It's pretty faithful, you know, as far as the broad strokes go. But you know, it's it's more hardcore. I remember that. Hmm. Yeah. But yeah, so, if if we we're gonna find out. If you're going to go anywhere to find out the inner workings of these people's minds, it would be in that book. Okay. Well, I will. The secrets that. are there. I'm gonna I'm gonna download that fucker and find out. But uh, and prove you wrong. Peggy visits. Fats reveals the psychic card trick secret, and then she storms off. Because even if you don't believe Fats, Anne Margaret sure the fuck does. Of course. But why would she? Unless she realized, why would she it was believe true. it? Yeah, because he's in control of the dummy, so she believes it. But she doesn't know that he's not in control of the dummy. She has no idea that that he's being eclipsed in his mind by fats. That's so why she, she interpre- buys the whole thing. So, so the way she interprets it is that this is, is the Corky's. Way- <laughs> Cor- this is Corky's way of saying, "I don't want to be with you." Right. 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 This is Corky saying, you believe this bullshit? So she's so insecure that she feels like she's being dumped by Corky. She, this, she thinks the way you think, that, this, that that actually was a trick, then that he does it with stewardesses and stuff like that. But why does she think that Corky would be revealing that to her? Because he, he, he doesn't... He wants her to leave, and she won't leave, and so he's like, "Fuck this." He wants her to leave because he's in the middle of having this fight with Fats. No, he wants her to leave because the bodies are starting to pile up, and he wants to get the hell out of there, and he wants her to go with him, and she won't leave because she wants to tell. She thinks she should She's stick around, Duke. Duke, and and she should and tell him Duke. what's going on, tell him the truth for his pride. And he wants her to go because he knows that they've got to get out of town. Yes. But again, you're not answering my question. What does Ann Mar why does why does Ann Margaret think Corky is doing what he's doing? Because he's pushing her away. He's basically saying But why does why would she in her mind, why is he pushing her away? Because she thinks she's worthless and and should be pushed away? don't know because that's what you know she thinks that's what men do like she's 
he, he, here he is. He's come back. He's a big star. She wants to believe that he's in love with her. But what he's revealing to her is like, no, nah, I was just trying to get you in a bed. You know, it's, yeah. it's sort of like you didn't think I was good enough in high school. And now I am good enough. And now that I've had you, goodbye. That's the scenario she's painted in her head. That's yes. Okay. All right. That's what I think is going on. All right. I buy that. So she does. So now do you off. buy that the. No. That the, okay. All right. I thought I had you there. No, no, no. No, 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 no. I, I don't think that either. I don't think. I, I don't believe See? that. I don't believe. No, I don't believe that Corky or Fats, the Fats side of Corky would be. Have it together enough to make up a, a lie about Corky, a trick being fats is very devious corky is not fats is devious yeah well i mean i i, I would say that ultimately probably the psychology of this movie makes no sense uh-huh. <laughs> you know it hasn't really been worked out like what is it about corky's psychology that he needs to have this whole thing with fats and, and that he needs to push her away because uh, and then, and then anything, everything he has is because of fats. Everything. He can't do anything without fats. He's just a worthless magician without fats. And, you know, and he, can't, he can't convince, he, 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 you know, he can't, like, break the ice between him and Peggy. He can't convince, uh, he can't face Duke at the at the breakfast table without fats. Like, that's the only way he can squirm out of any of these things or get what he wants. But he's done. He's, he's, he's taken care of it. He's killed people. He's, everything's out of his way now. All he has to do is leave with her. Right, and, which she won't do. Plus, Fats doesn't want her to go with them. <laughs> yeah, Remember? But- Fats doesn't want her to go with him. Fats yes, is but driving her away. if we're taking this as a movie about quirky psychology... What is it about his psychology that he needs Fats to be... To, what is it... You're saying Fats, he, fats he, doesn't want... Fats doesn't want... Doesn't want but that's Corky. What Margaret is it about... Around. Why is... What's Corky's... What is Corky's psychology about not wanting Anne margaret around? Why does he have that part of his personality? Because he's crazy. And... And, okay. <laughs> and he's like... He cannot go five minutes without Corky. And, you know, and Anne Margaret is going to get in the way of that. And he knows this. So he makes up this lie. Okay. To, and then to so drive okay. Anne Margaret away. Well, I don't. Th- okay. Maybe. Maybe. I'm going to investigate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but then there's this scene where Fats takes control of Corky, makes him get down on all fours, right. and do all this shit, which right. is. Uh, d- Maybe this, maybe again, we can play out the psychology and figure out what's going on in Anthony Hopkins' mind that he's submitting to all this. I think it's more. I think that. I think that ultimately, this movie is more about the ways William Goldman and Richard Attenborough are trying to trick the audience into thinking, "I know what's going to happen. I'm scared about what's going to happen." I think this scene is about telling us as an audience that Corky has no control and if Fats tells him to go kill Anne Margaret that's what he's going to do and so that when he goes back to the house to present her with the wooden heart 
and then we see him hiding in the hallway and he's got the knife, we're convinced he's about to kill her. A wooden heart that he whittled. Like yes. When he was yes. a little boy whittling. Yes. Yeah. So what do you think, what is the, is there a second meaning, uh, you know, about about the wooden heart? Like is what is what is the wooden heart symbolizing? I mean, is there is there other than like it's a heart and I can whittle stuff out of wood? Uh-huh. Is there something about the concept of having a wooden heart? You know, like a not an actual heart, like my heart's made out of wood. I I don't know. You mean like the Tin Man or something like that? Yeah, like it's like a metaphor. It's, it's, it's 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 sort of like or. Or Corky, a, or or Fats a, 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 is Corky's wooden heart, and he's handing right. Fats over to her. Right. I'm not saying that's it, but I'm saying that kind no, of. No, I mean, yeah, I can see it. I can see where you're going with this. I'm not really going anywhere with really. <laughs> I can see where you're going, Professor. Yeah, but uh, Corky presents Peggy with the wooden heart back at the cabin. Corky shows up. He's got the bloody knife, but of course, it turns out he hasn't stabbed Peggy. He has stabbed himself yes and then again as an audience member even this time somehow it sucked me in and again this is the sort of magic trick of the movie that i'm invested in waiting to see when corky dies is fat's gonna die like is that (laughs) really gonna happen or is corky gonna be dead and fat's still gonna roll his eyes gets up and dust himself off yeah Well, well that's done I mean, that's a terrifying... Now I'll go possess Anne Margaret. I mean, that would also be a great... That would be a more John Carpenter ending of the thing. That would be terrific. If the end of this movie is they're both laying there dead, but then Fats, after a couple minutes, like, gets up, that would be (laughs) fucking fantastic. I would love that movie. I mean, I could see, after a few seconds, his eyes move. That Mm -hmm. that would be a great ending. (laughs) Him getting up, in my mind, is the funniest thing in the world. Well, I would have thought it was funny, too, until I saw the Alfred Hitchcock Presents where that happens. This Alfred Hitchcock Presents thing. It's pretty like, good. Uh, uh, yeah, the woman walks into the hotel room. She's never had a private audience with the with her with this ventriloquist who she's been admiring for years. She's been going to every single show. She's been writing him love letters, and he finally invites her back to the hotel room, and he's in darkness, and he's sitting there at the table, and the dummy's right next to him. And he says, don't come any closer to me. But she can't resist. She needs to have physical contact with the with the ventriloquist. So she walks over and she touches his arm, and he collapses. Right, and his head falls off. <laughs> and it's like, huh? And then the fucking dummy gets up from the table and stands on gets up and stands on the table and does this crazy little dance. And it's fucking terrifying. I mean, it sounds funny. It's it's mind-bogglingly freaky and scary. So I can see. A similar sounds, ending for this. Sounds great. great. Yeah. Sounds great. And, and then he pulls his dummy head off and it's Billy Barty. And I'm like, whoa, mine totally blown. Oh, my God. Well, we've done it. Well, I mean, you know, I just think this movie, uh, as many times as I've seen it, and it hasn't been that long since I last saw it. It's only a couple of years ago. Um, mm-hmm. I watch Me too, it. actually. Me too. Yeah. So, I mean, but it is it is hopelessly out of step with what's happening with horror in the 70s, you know? And I think, I mean, it I, was it a success? I mean, it wasn't reviewed very well, but, you know, it just, it just 
was too old fashioned for what was really happening, especially that year with Halloween and what had already happened with, with Craven and and Hooper and you know it's just you know yeah, but I find that totally charming about it, okay. and I think that I think that it actually probably holds up better now because it was came out in seventy eight and they didn't if they made it in nineteen eighty. I I don't think I don't think it would be as good today. I don't think. I mean, it would there's be something super old-fashioned about Misery too, you know. And it yeah. seems like anytime Goldman does this kind of thing, there's just it's uh, maybe he knows that and doesn't care, but it just seems out of step with what's going on around it. And and you're, you're right, you know, it, it, that's that can be what differentiates it from the other stuff. You don't need all that crazy stuff. Come over here. We, this is more comforting. Well, in both cases, I mean, in this one, he's d- adapting his own novel. So it's like a novel. It's like I wrote this novel, right. and I want to translate to this, this to the screen. So all the things that are priorities for him as a novelist, he's trying to maintain. And I think he's also trying to do the same thing for Stephen King in Misery, where he's like, you know, I, I this this book has all the interior lives of these two characters. I need to capture those in the screenplay and make make sure that those don't get lost in the service of what would otherwise just be sort of this visual intense right. suspense it, film. And it's pretty faithful to that book as well. Yeah. I'm trying to I'm trying to decide whether which I I I want to say that I actually prefer as far as movies, I prefer magic to misery. Yeah. Yeah. Misery is, it's got, got a couple of great scenes, but it's, yeah, it's even more old fashioned than magic. Yeah. And I believe I could be wrong about this, but I believe that it does, that it, that it follows this trend set in Kubrick's The Shining where, they throw in this sort of shock, sacrificial murder of um, a character like three quarters of the way through that you think, oh, this character is going to help save the day. Right. And, I, oh, yeah. and I, I know that's not what happens in the book of The Shining, and I don't think that that happens in Misery, the book, either. That is... I can't remember. I do think that those are like... Those are those filmmakers trying to make it more cinematic or trying to keep up, right. trying to make it more current as far as what happens in horror movies or suspense yeah, movies. Yeah, I, I knew somebody who they felt that that was The Shining's main offense was, was it, killing it is. Scatman. T- yeah. They're totally right. Yeah. I mean, other than, other than because, you know, you spend so much time in Sc- with Scatman's journey and it, and mm-hmm. it, and as soon as you see it, and you're like, oh, this was all because he wants this payoff where, like, boom, he's out of it as soon as he gets there. Right. You know, which is, I guess, maybe cute the first time you see it. But then after that, every time you see it, you're like, okay, I got to sit through all these, like, driving through the things. And I know it's just this dumb, it's just for this dumb gimmick. <laughs> <laughs> well, you call it a gimmick. Like, you know. I do. Yeah. It's a trick. It's a magic trick. It's a trick. Well, this has been a delight. I like it. A little contentious. Yeah. Well, good luck uh, back on the road. So, hey, we'll see everybody next time on 70 Movies on the 70s again.
Thanks for listening. Everybody. That's the end. What? I don't That's know. The what? What? Just got trail off. I forget. This is like the worst. The, the this, worst. This is my magic. The movie style ending for this ending. Show. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hey, bastard. I'll see you next time you're in town. Next time we'll talk about something else. Absolutely. Yeah. You bastard. You bastard. You bastard. You bastard. You bastard. <laughs> Maybe lips, I'm not that good at it. Your lips are moving. I know, and I still can't hit the, the B even with even with my lips moving. Right.